This is FM 100.5, 101.9, AM 1450, and WGNSRadio.com. Rutherford County's Place to Talk. Stand by, Rutherford County. The WGNS Action Line continues a search for truth. to you. Welcome into the Action Line from WGNS. This morning we are focusing on Middle Tennessee State University. And in our first segment, Dr. Elizabeth Barnes is with us. She is the Assistant Professor of Biology Education in the College of Basic and Applied Sciences. Well, first of all, good morning, Liz Barnes. How are you today? Good morning, Bart. Thanks for having me. I'm doing wonderful. How are you today? Doing great. On this beautiful fall morning, it would be hard to be anything but that. Good to have you with us today. Uh, We're going to look at ways to reduce tensions between science and religion. I'm all ears if you can show us how to do that. Uh, First of all, uh, go over uh, what, what made you look into this area to start with. Uh, Yeah, so I've been doing this research since I myself was an undergraduate student. Um, I was very interested in biology, and I started taking biology classes, and I became um, very interested in evolutionary biology. I thought that the idea of evolution was just so grand and beautiful, the idea that all of life on Earth um, comes from a common ancestor and we're all related. Um, And then I also started taking social psychology classes um, and learning about how people sometimes decide what to believe and not based on their group identities. Um, And I also learned that a lot of people didn't accept evolution, and a lot of times this was based on their religious identity. And so that um, kind of started my, my research my research interests in, in how to change this, so how to change um, the fact that, that people see religion as in conflict with evolution, because when we teach um, biology, evolution is a really, really imp- important part of that. It's kind of seen as the foundation of the entire discipline, so we want to be educating students um, who are able to use evolution in their thinking, but also not feel like they have to give up their religious beliefs in order to learn about evolution and think that it's useful. Okay, well tell us a little about some of the things you were finding, because uh, this is an interesting perspective compared to some of the arguments that we hear uh, outside of the classroom dealing on this subject. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I would say that one of the one of the things that we're finding the most that's um, that's surprising is that there is this very pervasive misconception um, um, among our students that you either have to be an atheist who accepts evolution, or you have to be um, a special creationist who who um, believes in God and rejects evolution. But the reality is that there's a wide range of positions in between those to extremes in which um, people both accept evolution and believe in God. So, for instance, um, theistic evolution is a belief that some people subscribe to, this idea that a god somehow started and was responsible for evolution. And that's not in conflict with what we know from science, because 
science doesn't tell us whether or not God exists. Science just tells us how life may have came to be within the natural world. Okay, now, one of the items that was uh, in sort of an outline of what your studies are about shows that Mm -hmm. uh, you've recently focused on how learning evolution could be particularly uncomfortable for people of color and for women. Uh, how come those two? Why, why are they separated on this? Yeah, so so this is um, this is something that I've been uncovering in my data over the last four years now. When we're looking at students and their experiences learning evolution, one thing that I started to notice is that um, the students of color in my data set um, were having uh, more negative attitudes towards evolution when they were learning about it. Um, And so when I started to dig more into the literature about this, what I started to learn is that communities of color have very rich um, um, religious communities um, compared to to other communities. And and because of this... uh, they may perceive more conflict between religion and evolution as well, just because religious beliefs tend to be, on average, this doesn't apply to everybody in those groups, but religious beliefs tend to be more prevalent in those groups. And this is um, a source of support for them. When we look into the literature, we even see that um, religious community and support has been um, a factor actually mitigating the negative effects of racism and oppression in these groups. Um, so we really want to be careful when we're talking in the classroom about evolution and, and how evolution and religion might be incompatible or in conflict because we might be disproportionately um, disadvantaging some of those students um, if, we're, if we're propagating the idea that evolution and religion have to be in conflict. Okay. So is this uh, to the point where you're able to uh, have this in... Is any of this found in textbooks? Have you put out some textbooks yourself or... Tell us so um, it is. It's not currently in textbooks, but I do have published articles. I have several published articles in which we've explored um, students' perceptions about religion and evolution, and we've even actually implemented some interventions to show the effectiveness of certain teaching strategies. So, for instance, um, we have we have implemented what we call religious cultural competence. Um, in evolution education, which includes, when we're teaching evolution, presenting religious scientist role models. So what we mean by that are individuals who are scientists, who are religious, and who also accept evolution. Um, So, for instance, the director of the National Institutes of Health, um, you could argue, you know, one of the most authoritative scientists in the United States um, today, Dr. Francis Collins, um, is an advocate for evolution. In fact, he headed the Human Genome Project, um, and and he's also a self-proclaimed evangelical Christian, uh, and he... He um, founded an organization called Biologus with one of the sole purposes of promoting harmony between religion and evolution. And what we found in, in those publications is those religious scientist role models are really impactful for students who are religious themselves, um, but don't necessarily see that identity reflected in the scientific community as much. I think often when we think of a scientist, we often think of um, an older, white, um, secular, maybe atheist person. So giving those students examples of people where they can see their own identity reflected in 
seems to make an impact for them. And they actually go from perceiving religion and evolution in conflict to perceiving that evolution and religion can be compatible. Now, obviously, we see so many, uh, you know, you're, you're either extreme this side or extreme that side uh, in so many things these days, whether it is government, uh, whether it is uh, political parties, whether it is religious beliefs, it's either this one or that one, and there's not a whole lot in between. Uh, do you think that what you're studying with the evolution uh, and and having uh, having a, a sort of a better understanding for it will this help to bring us back to where there is a middle ground? You know, I'm really glad that you put it in those terms because that's exactly um, what the aim is. Uh, you know, I think that one of my biggest concerns when I kind of see the state of science and society these days is we see increasing polarization. Uh, and you said this, like you said, this is not just relegated to religion um, and science, but also in politics and science. And so one of my goals is to is to yes let's bring us back to the middle and and what we're seeing is that is that those polar um those po- polar opposite or the polar ends are actually not that prevalent they're just louder so the people that are on the atheistic evolution kind of bend or the special creationist anti-evolution bend they're actually a smaller proportion of individuals than you would think given you know how prevalent their voices are and so part of what we're doing in you know my research lab is to let let's really focus on where most people actually are you know and what and reflect what most people's views actually are which are not those polar those polar extremes Okay, so do you think that this may be the the tool that could bring uh, our country and really our world back together again? Well, I hope that for religion and evolution, I think that some of the strategies that um, I've outlined, you know, talking about theistic evolution, providing religious scientists role models, and really talking about, you know, the boundedness of science and, and how science only answers questions about the natural world. It doesn't answer questions about the existence of God or how we ought to live, you know, our ethics and our morality, and making that clear. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it can really help to try to, to bring us all together. Let's Let's focus on our shared, you know, values and our shared our shared knowledge, and 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 not really focus on those um, those polar extremes. Now, what are the students? Uh, students are, are young when when you get the most of them are young, uh, and mm-hmm. and a lot of folks say, well, that is their liberal beginnings. Uh, and what what do they feel when, when you talk to them about this? Uh, what kind of reaction are you getting from students? Yeah, so there's a wide variability among students, but I think one thing that always um, is really interesting that I see from students of faith particularly is how surprised they are um, that they can be both religious and accept evolution. Um, it never it never ceases to amaze me how many students come into the classroom with this very basic misconception. And if you think about it, it's it's really concerning because nationwide, seventy five about uh, sixty five to seventy five percent of our students identify with a religious affiliation, right? And about half of them consider themselves a religious person. So if all of those students are coming into the classroom thinking that they have to be an atheist to accept the like uh, the foundation of the biological sciences, um, you know, that that is a really big 
a really big challenge. And so that's something that consistently I see that really surprises me about uh, students when they come in. And then now how they react to what I'm teaching them um, is really heartening, right? So just by using some of these simple strategies of showing examples of religious scientists who accept evolution and discussing theistic evolution, their mind uh, takes a complete 180 and says, wow, it's just so amazing that I can now, I can keep my religious faith, I don't have to worry about that, and still, you know, um, be a scientist and, and accept evolution, and maybe even study evolution one day. Now, we're almost out of time, but before we go, are you finding that more students are claiming that they have a, a religious affiliation now? Is that on the increase, or is it uh, leveling off, or is it decreasing? So um, the, I do not have longitudinal data from my classes to say that, but I can speak on the nationwide trend. And it does seem that over the last decade that we're seeing a decrease in um, affiliation with organized religion. So people are remaining spiritual. People remain, um, they're remaining believing in God, but it seems like there is um, a, a disidentification with organized religion over the last 10 years. We've seen about a 10% decrease in those who affiliate with an organized religion. Very good. Well, we have about 30 seconds left in this segment. Uh, is there anything that we've left out that you wanted to be sure and cover? Uh, well, I just want to say that I, you know, I'm a brand new assistant professor here at MTSU, and now I'm I'm really excited to be taking these ideas about religion and evolution, and um, to start applying them to uh, to politics and and biology and society as well. So hopefully, in the future, I'll be on your radio show um, talking about how to reduce tension between politics and science. All right. Well, I hope you uh, come up with that answer and a solution for that. <laughs> It would be a whole lot happier place. We do thank you for joining us this morning. Dr. Elizabeth Barnes, Assistant Professor of Biology Education in a College of Basic and Applied Sciences. Dr. Barnes, thank you. You You have a great day. Bye-bye. You too. Bye. Stay with us. We have a lot of other subjects to cover this morning. Uh, Some really fascinating topics. That last one was phenomenal. Stay with us, won't you? The Action Line with Bart Walker. Weekday mornings at 810. WGNS, your good neighbor station. Rutherford place to talk. At Bud's Tire Pros, they care about those who live and work here because you're a big part of what makes this place great. This is Kay Mitchell at Bud's Tire. Come by and see us at Bud's Tire, 3600 East Main Street, or call 896-TIRE. They will be here through the good times and the uncertain times. For those who are out on the road, stop in today to see their full lineup of Michelin tires. For whatever you drive, Michelin has a tire to fit any need. Bud's Tire Pros, they're essential, they're open, they're local. Visit them online at BudsTireProsTN.com. October is Car Care Awareness Month, and First Class Sales and Service in Smyrna wants to give you 10% off for your fall tune-up. So stop by and make sure that heat is blowing hot and your air conditioning is not. That's 10% off for your fall tune-up at First Class Sales and Service in Smyrna. This is Peter Demas with Demas Family of Restaurants. When it's getting cold outside and you don't want to really get out of your car, Demas's has now started a curbside service. So you can order online, put your make and model of your car into the website, and when the food is ready, we will bring it out to your car, and therefore you can still be in your pajamas and come and get lunch and go back to your home if you want to. Curbside service. It's just another level of service of which we are trying to provide the residents of Murfreesboro. Visit us online at demasrestaurants.com. If I could talk to the animals. Hi, 
Hi, this is Amanda from Animal City right here in Murfreesboro. Whether you're looking for a new pet to add to the family or accessories to keep your current pet happy and enriched, Animal City is the place for you. We are excited to announce that our fall fragrance pet odor exterminating candles are here. If you have not experienced these, you should stop in and check them out. Animal City, 919 Northwest Broad Street, right here in Murfreesboro. Thank you for allowing us to serve you for 30 years. Well, good morning. We're still looking at a steady flow of traffic here on 24, especially going westbound here up by uh, 840 uh, Elmaville Road. Traffic's been in pretty good shape, actually, as far as really bad wrecks. Stop and go down sections of Middle Tennessee Boulevard uh, here right now. Just busy where you pretty much would expect. Celebrate autumn at Obergatlinburg during Oktoberfest now through November 1st. Music, food, live entertainment. Check it all out at Obergatlinburg.com. I'm Commander Chug. You're on time traffic. Thank you, Chuck. What about the Murphy's? Murfreesboro weather brought to you by First National Bank of Murfreesboro. We'll have mostly cloudy skies for the forecast. Highs warming into the upper 70s. Partly cloudy tonight, 59 for a low, 79 on Tuesday with sunshine. I'm meteorologist Mandy Faluber on News Radio WGNS. Currently 61. COVID 19 has changed our world, and First National Bank of Murfreesboro is here to help you. During these uncertain times, it's good to have a friend to walk with you and help with financial guidance. First National Bank of Murfreesboro is here to help you with free text banking, bill paying, mobile deposits, and more. I'm Shelly Rigsby, manager of First National Bank of Murfreesboro. And I'm Amanda Gentry. Now a part of the Capstar Bank family, member FDIC. On air, online, and on the phone. You can listen to us anywhere. News Radio WGNS is Rutherford County's place to talk. Welcome back. We are focusing on Middle Tennessee State University today. By the way, our birthday winner from Simply Pure Sweets Bakery and Cafe is Jack Gritton. Happy birthday to Jack Gritton, our winner today. And our good neighbors of the day, David and Vicki Reed. David and Vicki, they received flowers from Ryan Flowers Coffee and Gifts. Jenny Harrison and the family over there at Ryan's. Uh, and David and Vicki, the person who nominated them, said they are such great people. They're always helping in the community and they always put others first. Good neighbors, definitely. In this segment of our Salute to MTSU, we're going to continue, and our guest now is Dr. Cheney Mosley, Assistant Professor of Agricultural Education at MTSU's School of Agriculture. Good morning to you. How are you today? Good morning. I'm doing well, and how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for joining us today. You know, I'm, I was sort of surprised that there is tension. You, you're working on a project of, about tension uh, in the farms. There's, I shouldn't be surprised, though. There's tension everywhere we go these days. Uh, but you say is there's an increase in uh, stress and also suicide rates with farmers, ranchers, uh, anyone dealing in agriculture. Is that right? That's correct, um, and, and it stems from a lot of different places. You know, farmers and ranchers are subject to elements that directly impact their work and their livelihood that many others are not subjected to. 
Uh, and it's not just one specific element. We're talking about weather, right? So crops and livestock are certainly impacted by the, the weather that we have, and that could make or break a farm. Um, but also there are issues related to trade and the farm economy. And you just mentioned there's a lot of tension, and so sometimes um, farmers are right in the middle of these the, the tension that's related to trade issues and the farm economy. Yeah, I hadn't thought about those issues, but I guess it's because I'm not a farmer. I don't think about But if you're a farmer, uh, you are thinking about issues uh, when the government uh, pulls back on trade between other countries. It could dramatically impact you. Uh, you don't have a lot of control over that. You certainly don't have a lot of control over the weather, and that could ruin you in a year. And you have not had any control over COVID-19. Nobody has had any control over that. So uh, are you seeing an increase in this stress level right now with farmers? There are a few recent studies that show that uh, symptoms of depression amongst farmers and ranchers can range between 6% to 35%. But when you think about a career area or an industry such as farming, with 35% of the workforce showing symptoms of depression, that's kind of alarming. And because of that, suicide among farmers and ranchers has become a national issue and is of great concern. Is this problem changing farming the way that uh, we once knew it. It used to be a family business. Are we seeing it becoming more of a corporate business? Um, I, I don't think that the national issue of farmer and rancher stress is related to the some farms becoming um, being operated by corporations or um, not being family farms. But I, but I will say that family farms, um, the fact that it is an operation that's in the family sometimes contributes to that stress as well. The average age of the family farmer is rising, and for many family farms who have been running their operations for years, um, uh, something that they are experiencing is that children may not be interested in continuing that operation because they have a desire to move to an area that offers greater amenities such as health care or dependable internet or uh, internet access or more social opportunities where they're moving away to go to college and they're experiencing other things. And so concerns about who to transition the farm operation to or even if there is someone to transition that farm operation to can also relate to farmer and rancher stress. Now, is this a, a problem that's pretty much in all regions of the United States or is it in one area more than another? It is pervasive across the United States. The grant that we received from the United States Department of Agriculture worked to establish four regional hubs, if you will, to support farmer and rancher stress. And it involves a variety of things, including research and also outreach and creating resources. So because it is a national concern, they created these four regional hubs. And Middle Tennessee State University in collaboration with a lot of other partners, we'll be focusing on the southern region, which includes 13 states and the territories of Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands. Okay. Uh, I don't think about, I guess we. I don't think about those uh, areas that much, but I don't think of them as agricultural areas, but I guess uh, they really are, uh, Puerto Rico and Virgin Islands, things of that sort. Well, 
yeah, if you think about it, every community, every state, every territory in our country in general, agriculture is the basis of our economy. Every person depends on farmers for our daily needs, food, fuel, clothing, shelter, all the products and all the commodities that serve, that make what we do daily possible originates with a farmer. And so we may not be importing a lot of goods from Virgin Islands or from Puerto Rico, but in their specific territories, farmers play a, a very important role, especially being, in the, being that they are surrounded by water. Mm-hmm. So in reality, farming and agriculture is probably the most, or at least one of the most, important industries uh, in our world. I, I would argue that it is. Okay. <laughs> I, I also like to say that that you know, as an industry, not only an industry, but but, but farming is the it's the oldest industry and possibly the oldest science as well. Now, since we're looking and living in the southeast. Uh, this is, uh, you know, always thought of as an agrarian community. Uh, the the southeast is. Uh, it, it has to be really pulling at uh, uh, a lot of families. I, I can imagine the stress level is is horrible. Uh, the person uh, who's running the family farm, as you said, is getting older now, and in the past it was just sort of a natural thing to move this on to the younger part of the family. But now they're not wanting to take over that. Is that what you're saying? In some instances, that's the case. And that's not not always the case, but that is a concern. It's interesting, though, that you, you speak about um, Tennessee in general being very agrarian, as are many of the states that make up the southern region. And when you think about that, you think about the, the average age of a farmer is over 60 years of age. These individuals, especially in rural areas, often emerge as leaders in those communities. They're leaders in their churches. They may serve in the role of uh, deacon or elder or sometimes pastor, playing dual, having dual careers, being the pastor of a church and a farmer at the same time. Uh, they are in many times viewed as the head of the household, the decision maker. And because of that, many folks look to farmers, especially in rural areas, um, for advice, for guidance, for counsel. They see them as the bedrock of a family and a, a strong person in the community. And because of that, what we know is that farmers sometimes wait to seek help until the symptoms of depression are so extreme that they are wholly disrupting their day-to-day work. And there are some who never ask for help, and they just spend their time suffering alone, uh, battling thoughts of suicide on a daily basis. And it's important to think about that when also thinking about where large farms and family farms exist. They don't exist in metropolitan areas where access to resources abound. Um, They're often in rural areas, sometimes remote areas, and because of that, farmers who might withdraw from social activities are also isolated geographically. They may not have the, the wireless Internet access that I spoke about earlier. And if that's the case, they can't, access, they can't even 
complete a search on Google to see if, if some of the symptoms or things that they're experiencing are unique to them or if it's something that others are experiencing, right? So those of us who live in Murfreesboro and Nashville and surrounding areas often become so dependent and so reliable on using the Internet for resources to access information, but this is not something that those in rural areas uh, have the privilege to do. Dr. Mosley, we are almost at the end of this segment, but before we leave, if the description that you are presenting right now, uh, a family member is thinking that is so-and-so that he's describing, or if you're hearing this and you're saying, he's talking about me, what can you do? How do you find help instead of being that person that you described as just waiting there and enduring this? It's so. There's there's two answers to that question. The first part is if uh, if you're listening to this and these symptoms sound familiar, and you think you know someone who may be exhibiting this these symptoms, as a family member, as a friend, as a neighbor, the best thing that you can do is ask a farmer how they are doing and initiate that conversation. Because when you open the door for communication, you're also creating an opportunity to connect, mm-hmm. and that can make all the difference in the world. All right, so ask if, them. And if, if you are a farmer, the best thing that you can do is take that step to tell someone about the thoughts or the concerns that you have and ask for help. Do you go to the Farm Bureau? Do you go to MTSU? Where, where do you go? There are a lot of resources um, the farm, the County Farm Bureau would be an excellent resource. Also, faith-based organizations are great resources because while they may not have people on staff who are um, who specialize and are able to provide that care, they do have the knowledge and can point farmers in the right direction, certainly. Um, the Tennessee Suicide Prevention Network has, has um, a network of employees across the state that are often positioned in rural areas that can provide resources. Uh, there really are a wealth of resources available, but if we if we don't know who needs those resources or um, or where to send them to, then that limits access. Thank you so much for sharing this vital, life-saving information with us today. Dr. Cheney Mosley, Assistant Professor of Agricultural Education in MTSU's School of Agriculture. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. You have a great day. Stay with us. The conversation continues as we focus on Middle Tennessee State University. We are in early voting, and you talk about something that's full of stress. This election, it is. We're going to be looking at that. Stay with us. Consumer Warrior Clark Howard. We discuss ways you can save more, spend less, and avoid getting ripped off. Weekdays 11 to 1, here on WGNS. Precision Air knows you want the air inside your home as safe and clean as possible. Clean the air in your home with an affordable UV system. WGNS listeners get $50 off. 615-930-0088. A whole house air purifier. 615-930-0088. At Bud's Tire Pros, they care about those who live and work here because you're a big part of what makes this place great. This is Kay Mitchell at Bud's Tire. Come by and see us at Bud's Tire, 3600 East Main Street, or call 896-TIRE. They will be here through the good times and the uncertain times. For those who are out on the road, stop in today to see their full lineup of Michelin tires. For whatever you drive, Michelin has a tire to fit any need. Bud's Tire Pros, they're essential, they're open, they're local. Visit them online at BudsTireProsTN.com. 
schedule online anytime. Getting an appointment with Ascension Care Teams at St. Thomas just got easier with online scheduling. Now you don't have to break away from your day to book the care you need when and where you need it. No matter where you are or what you're up to, whether you're a new patient or if you've been here before, just pick the appointment that works for you. Schedule online anytime at GetSTHealthCare.com. Well, good morning. We're still looking at a steady flow of traffic here on 24, especially going westbound here up by uh, 840 uh, Elmaville Road. Traffic's been in pretty good shape, actually, as far as really bad regs. Stop and go down sections of Middle Tennessee Boulevard uh, here right now. Just busy where you pretty much would expect. Celebrate autumn at Obergatlenburg during Oktoberfest now through November 1st. Music, food, live entertainment. Check it all out at Obergatlenburg.com. I'm Commander Chug. You're on time traffic. We'll have mostly cloudy skies for the forecast. Highs warming into the upper 70s. Partly cloudy tonight, 59 for a low, 79 on Tuesday with sunshine. I'm meteorologist Mandy Thaluber on News Radio WGNS. Currently 61. Hi, this is Gator with Tire World Off-Road. We're your local rough country dealer. So when you're ready to add some character to your rig, ask for Gator at Tire World Off-Road on Memorial Boulevard. This is Sean Brown at Tire World on Broad Street. Online at tireworld.us. Start your weekdays with The Early Show. Zach Trotman and CBS News Radio wake you up weekday mornings from 4 to 6 a.m. on News Radio WGNS. Our focus on Middle Tennessee State University continues here on WGNS. And in this segment, we're going to have as our guest, Kent Seiler, political science professor and political analyst. First of all, Kent, great to have you with us this morning. Thanks, Bart. It's it's great to be with you. Good to have you here. And uh, this is certainly an unusual year. Uh, Not only do we have the (laughs) pandemic with us, we have a presidential election, and we have something that uh, I haven't seen in a long time, and that is a vigorous outpouring of people wanting to vote. Uh, Do all of these have something in common? (laughs) You know, Bart, that's a good good question and a a lot to analyze, isn't it? you know, there is great enthusiasm in this race. And uh, if you look at um, how many people are, are have already voted or are voting every day, it's, it's kind of hard to tell if it's people just wanting to get it out of the way and not deal with, you know, uh, Election Day pandemic voting uh, or real energy. And, um, you know, I, I guess I think it's probably some of both. So... We're getting. I was talking with Alan Farley, the Rutherford County election administrator, yep. and he is predicting for Rutherford County about a sixty percent turnout of total voters. That sounds exciting. Uh, if we went back far enough, uh, would the? I mean, back to when it was the American thing to do. I mean, this was your right as an American to vote the person in that would represent you. Would those numbers have been higher than 60%? Or are we just kidding ourselves? We've, we've been uh, lackadaisical all along. Yeah, you know, Bart, I've looked at presidential numbers. And, in, in, you know, when I was working with Congressman Gordon, a lot of times we were, you know, every two years we were on the ballot with a presidential candidate. So we would, you know, try to figure out how many we're going to vote and target and all that. 
I think um, Allen, uh, Allen's numbers are probably pretty consistent with what we saw. Maybe in a really, really hot year, you'd get 70%. Um, but, um, you know, it usually fell between that 60 and 70% uh, range. And um, Allen does a great job, and uh, he usually knows exactly what's going on. Uh, but you know the the energy there is there is incredible passion and energy about the race this year. Uh, you know, a lot of the election four years ago was about Hillary Clinton. Uh, this one is a lot about Donald Trump, and you know Donald Trump um, has a way of generating very intense feelings with people. Uh, some people love him, and some people don't. And uh, there's just a lot of energy out there. I think a lot, and again, a lot of it surrounding uh, President Trump. So you're thinking that a lot of people who are against him, they are vigorously outvoting, and uh, a lot of people who are for him and want to be sure he's reelected, they're also vigorously outvoting. So you're going to have a, a two sides of vigorous uh, people voting. Uh, will that make any difference, or will that just make a, a large number with about the same percentages? Yeah, probably the latter. Uh, you know, energy is really what can change an election and, and one of the one of the things that brought uh, president trump in four years ago was his his supporters were more fired up and energetic than hillary clinton's were uh this time like you said there there seems to be a lot of energy on both sides the the, the other uh real thing that could be contributing to uh the high early vote numbers is you know upwards of 95 percent of the people have made up their minds and say they're not going to change them so if you've already made up your mind what you're going to do, you know, why wait? Now, if we went back 75, 100 years uh, or longer uh, in, in voting trends, would we ever have reached 80, 90 percent of the people voting because they knew it was the right thing to do? Or, or is that just in our dreams? You know, it's it's. I would imagine, you know, Americans have never been just the absolute best voters in the world as far as, you know, turnout goes. But, um, and a lot of it has to do with registration, too. You know, if you go back to, you know, 75 years ago, uh, there probably, probably didn't have the, you know, we certainly didn't have the number of people registered that we did today or the percentage of the population registered. So I, I think it's been pretty consistent. Yeah, you know, it, it may have been um, something that more people did conscientiously uh, 75 years ago. But, you know, just keeping the people's – you know what attention spans are like now and, uh, and all the different things that compete with people's time. So a lot of times it's, it's just difficult to get people to take the time and, and you know, go vote. Now, we've talked about gerrymandering uh, in other broadcasts. Uh, I think if you look at, uh, at, at the counties making up our uh, congressional district, U.S. congressional district, uh, that would have to be what I would think is a case of gerrymandering because you're looking at a string of counties from Rutherford County all the way uh, past Chattanooga on over into mm-hmm. Cleveland, Tennessee, having nothing in common with each other, thoughts or geography. Uh, how did how did that 
come about? I mean, we used to, there used to be some more logic in this. Well, they, you know, politicians are allowed to draw congressional districts. So the, the, uh, you know, the party that controls the state, um, House and Senate gets to, um, to draw the lines and politicians being politicians are going to draw them to, uh, to an advantage. And, uh, you know, the, the fourth district is interesting because that was not a, a, a gerrymandering fight, I mean, among Republicans and Democrats. That was a fight among Republicans. Uh, Republicans were looking at a way to get an advantage running in the primary in that district. You kind of had the Middle Tennessee contention uh, fighting Congressman Desjolais, who is more of an East Tennessee or Eastern Middle Tennessee-based person. And Coffee County, you mentioned how um, how Bradley County got there. Coffee County was in the fourth district, and at the last second, they had it taken out, and they put in half of Bradley County. And then subsequently, that was that Desjolais Jim Tracy race, which Desjolais won by 34 votes. So that is, you know, that little switch at the end is really what enabled him to win the election and still be in Congress. So. Uh, it's it's uh, you know it's it's part of politics. And so, it, it, when somebody is saying my vote doesn't count, there's one example that it did in a big way. It did, you know, in that race. Uh, I live over on the north side of Murfreesboro in the Siegel area, and we had a huge downpour right the last hour, hour and a half of voting. And I'm sure that uh, kept some Tracy, Tracy voters away, and he carried that Siegel precinct by huge numbers. So, yeah, it, it's uh, it, one vote can make a real difference, and that's not just a cliche. And what you just said, I had never thought of. I mean, you usually see, you know, people being in favor of one person over another, but you don't stop and think about a, a downpour, uh, a, you know, a lot of rain would would make someone else win. But I can see now from what you're saying, that certainly is a feasible idea. Yeah, in, in a close race, there's so many, you know, little elements that really can change the outcome. Well, let's look at the uh, pandemic that we're going through right now. We don't know one day from the next what's going to be happening, what the COVID-19 numbers are going to be. They are up and down all over the area. Uh, and all over the United States, uh, how big of an impact is COVID-19 going to have? Uh, it's, I think, going to have a pretty significant impact in the presidential race. And, uh, you know, presidential races are, especially or re-election races, are a referendum on the incumbent. And what President Trump and his campaign have tried to do is make this not a referendum on Donald Trump, but a choice between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. But the pandemic and all the things that have happened there uh, really keep this more or less a referendum on on President Trump. And uh, that makes it, you know, it's a referendum on his handling of the crisis, and he doesn't want the race to be there. He wants it to be a choice between, you know, two individuals. What kind of, uh, you know, thoughts are you having uh, on, on this? Not not you personally, but uh, what kind of thoughts are you having uh, as we look at the entire United States? We've had Alan Farley's review of Rutherford County, but as 
far as across the nation. Our, we're certainly not all uh, together in our thoughts of what's moving us uh, in the direction of voting or not voting, but uh, what, what are some of the pools that are being seen in other regions? Well, the the, the national polling has been incredibly consistent. If you uh, the Real Clear Politics has a synopsis of ten different polls, uh, kind of an average. And a year ago, President Trump was at forty three percent, forty four percent. That's where he is today. So a year later, he's still there. He's got to figure out a way to expand his base another 3 or 4%. He doesn't have to get to 50 because he's got an advantage in the Electoral College. But last race, he had 46, Hillary Clinton had 48. He needs to get at least within three points of Joe Biden in the popular vote in order to be able to... Uh, to, to, you know, put the electoral college, uh, collection of states together and, and win the election. So that's the thing to watch anytime you see a, a national poll with President Trump at it. <clears throat> see if he's been able to bounce off that 43, 44%. How do you think his best way of accomplishing that would be? And also, how do you think Joe Biden's best way would be? Well, Biden is in a, a, a better position because he's just got to hold what he's got. He's he's right around 50%. There are two independents in the race that are going to probably take about 3% of the vote. So, he he needs, you know, he he needs to hold what he's got. President Trump has got to expand, uh so he's got to get beyond his base and he's got to attract, you know, not a huge number of percentage, you know, more, but He's going to have to improve himself probably another 3%. Do you think that uh, voting by mail, uh, we've already seen a pretty good turnout in that. Is that going to be a surprise? Could that be a surprise for everybody? I, You know, I, I'm hoping the only surprise we get from the mail-in voting is, is one like we got in Tennessee uh, during the primary uh, when it went much more smoothly than we thought it would. The, the returns came in quickly. So Tennesseans handled, you know, Tennessee, Alan Farley and all his counterparts handled it very, very well. Now, the volume this time is going to be much greater, and it may slow it down some. But, you know, we've, uh, service members and seniors, a lot of people have been voting by mail for a long time. So it's, it's nothing new. It's just the volume this time. We're in the final minute of this broadcast, and, and let me be sure I'm understanding you correctly, Kent. You're, you're saying that... Sixty percent or so voter turnout is even when we compare it to fifty, seventy-five, a hundred years ago, when everybody says America was what it was—the strength back then. Uh, we're about where we were then, as far as turnout goes. We've never been much more than this. So you're saying we're probably never going to be eighty percent. We need to be the best we can be with what we have now. Is that right? Well, I think if everyone, uh, you know, the, the only the only vote we can control is our own, and I think as long as we all participate, uh, we'll see that number up there where it makes us more proud of of the way Americans turn out. But uh, you know, I, it's at least going back through my career, uh, it's always if we got sixty five or seventy, we were doing pretty well. Very good. Kent Seiler, our guest in this segment. Kent, thank you for joining us. Bart, thanks for having me. You have a great day.
Kent Seiler from Middle Tennessee State University. And our focus today has been MTSU. Go Big Blue. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a great day.